The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Let's pray. Father, we have spoken today and sung today of how you have sent Christ to us. We have sung earlier about how you in Christ for us are a shield and a tower, a refuge, a portion, a deliverer. These things are all sweet and good. At Sometimes we only sing of them and have a perhaps detached thankfulness and at other times we are keenly aware of need, keenly aware of vulnerability and the tenuous nature of life and then in those particular moments that you are a tower and a shield is sweet. You are, you for us in Christ, you God are good. You are a treasure to us. You are what we need. Will you this morning, Lord, from the passage before us and the, the thoughts and the words that you give, though both the ones that I have prepared and both the ones that I have and the ones that I have not prepared that you will give in the moment, and the words that you will speak to the minds of your people here by your spirit as they sit and listen. By the words that you give this morning, would you illumine the word and would you build up your people? Would you honor your name? Would you grow in us a greater appreciation for the fact that you are tower and refuge and strength? And Lord, will you grow in us, strengthen in us resolve to run to the tower, to depend on you. Not only in the midst of situations that we regard as trouble and that we regard as calamity, but in all of life, in every day, and even, Lord, to I, I pray that you would turn our minds towards you and deepen dependence on you for glorious things, not just for um, like a deliverance from darkness, but a, a running into the light. Would you grow in us dependence that would lead to glorious movement and glorious freedom of your Spirit amongst this, your people, and an increasing of your people to be far more than just this small number here this morning. What I'm asking, Lord, is that you would grow dependence in us for the sake of renewing and revival. Not just for deliverance from some crisis, but a deliverance from the, the lowness that our, that our church in this nation is in. Build us up, Lord, I pray. Grow in us dependence. 
Thank you for being dependable. Make your word clear now. Move here in this room. Have your way with us. Build us up in whatever way you choose. We're your people. We sit humble beneath you and look for you to work. Lift up Christ in front of us. Make him sweet to us. Cause us to cling to him and trust him. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Here on this last Sunday of the year, we turn our attention to the prophet Isaiah, chapter 30, verses 15 to 18. Over this holiday period, we're taking a break from our usual study of the Gospel of Luke. And this morning, as we look ahead to the new year, we're going to take a moment here to consider the important disposition of the people of God. The disposition or the attitude that the people of God, that the church, that we are supposed to to live in a disposition or an attitude, one of dependence, one that we should understand. And hopefully, uh, the reason I'm preaching on this topic here now is that as we look forward to the new year, may it characterize us increasingly so in 2016. We are a dependent people, dependent on one another. We are a family, a fellowship connected to one another, and so we love one another, we help one another, we work with and minister to with each other. We're a body. But more than that, we are dependent individually and corporately. We are dependent on God. He made us. He created us, physically sustains us, and then Christians, This body he remade us, caused us to be born again, and sustains us then spiritually. He sustains us physically, sustains us spiritually, made us physically, makes us spiritually. The Bible asks then rhetorically, what do you have that you didn't receive? And the answer, of course, is nothing. Everything we are, everything we have has come from him. We are utterly dependent. And so it's foolish to live as if we are independent. And that's what brings us to the prophet Isaiah and the events occurring among the people of Judah during the 8th century B.C. During that time, leading up to the year 700 B.C., Assyria was the the power, the great regional power. It lay to the north of Israel, while to the south was the has-been power of Egypt. And at this point in history, Israel really is just the tribe of Judah centered in Jerusalem. Assyria has already destroyed the ten northern tribes that were centered in Samaria. And so Judah, the people of Judah, the kingdom of Judah, is relatively small and weak. And Egypt is a bit bigger and a bit stronger, but nothing compares to Assyria. Big and bad and threatening as it invades the region again and moves towards Jerusalem and threatens to conquer it. To whom will the people of God look for help? Upon whom will they depend? The Lord, Yahweh, who is invisible, or visible, tangible Egypt? And the beginning of Isaiah chapter 30 records the unfortunate choice. As verse 2 puts it, the people of God take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. They looked to the horses and chariots of Egypt, though they had been forbidden ever to do so. 
They turn to Egypt and away from the Lord. And through Isaiah, the Lord tells them, that's a bad idea, that's not going to work. And as we look at what he says in just a couple of verses from this chapter, we're going to find a message from him to us, reading it through Isaiah and through the people of God back in that day. I'm going to summarize it, though, here in this main point. Here's the main point I'm working for this morning, pulling it out of verses 15 to 18. God makes us safe and strong as we depend on him. Simple point. Key, though, is the as we depend on him part. God makes us safe and strong as we depend on him. Let me read Isaiah chapter 30, verses 15 through 18, before drawing out three points from it. Verse 15, For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling, and you said, No, we will flee upon horses, therefore you shall flee away. And we will ride upon swift steeds, therefore your pursuers shall be swift. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one, at the threat of, a, at, at the threat of five you shall flee, till you are left like a flagstaff on the top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. Isaiah chapter 30. Three points. Here's the first. And it is the longer of the three, as is common. Dependence on God may seem risky and pointless, but in fact, it results in life. Dependence on God may seem risky and pointless, but in fact, it results in life. Verse 15, the offer is presented. Thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel. And he sets this up. It's important to, to see how he introduces what he's about to say. He puts himself, describes himself right out there in front. This is the one who is speaking, the Lord God. Literally, it is the Lord Yahweh. It is the Lord named I Am. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob speaking to those people reminding them, I'm the one who introduced myself to Moses, to you, back at the burning bush long ago. I am the one who is. The only one who is. Without beginning, without origin, without end, I simply always am. The one true God, the Holy One, that is distinct, separate from all the other gods of all the nations. And you, Israel, he's speaking to Israel, you know this because I am the one. I showed myself unique to be God by destroying all the gods of Egypt and by then bringing you out of captivity from Egypt and by then destroying the army of the Pharaoh of Egypt and then by saying that you should never return to Egypt. That God says... You stand at the crossroads here, and I'm telling you, 
promising you in returning and rest you shall be saved in quietness and in trust shall be your strength you need to be saved you need strength Assyria is coming you need to be saved from evil into life and you can find it I'm telling you you can find it it's available in returning and rest, quietness and trust. What do those words mean? What's he getting at there? Well, noticing, if you look at your Bible, you probably see the typeset would, would clue you in that this is all a poetry. And realizing that's poetry, we're alerted to a, a common feature of poetry, an idea of parallel statements that are saying, in this case, the same thing in different ways. So he's not saying four different things in these words. He's saying essentially the same thing in four different ways. Returning. You might have a footnote that says it's also the same word used for repentance, which is just about turning from one direction and going in a different direction. To return, to come back to me and to rest in me, quietly sitting beneath my hand and trusting me. They're tempted to run off to Egypt, and he says, come back. Come back. If you put it all in a word, He's calling them to dependence. Dependence on him. Different ways of putting it all, but that's the attitude or the disposition that he's getting at. Don't go off to Egypt. Stay here. Don't resort. Don't, don't turn away to the usual way. This is how the world works when you face a problem. You, you begin to, to try to collect all your resources and Egypt's an option, so you're tempted to go that way. Don't. Come back and sit down beneath me, which may seem incredibly risky. Because God's invisible. And you can calculate something about Egypt. You know where it is. You know what they've got. You know how much it'll cost you. God is invisible. And at this particular point, Assyria is still coming and God, the only reason that we're in this predicament is that God has not yet done anything about that. So the call here to trust one who has so far not done anything and so far still can't see him, that seems perhaps a bit risky. And that, in fact, is the point that the, the Assyrians, when the Assyrians, we can read about this elsewhere, they dialogue with Israel about the folly of trusting this God. None of the other gods of the nations have been able to deliver their people from me, says the king of Assyria. Your God didn't deliver Israel, the northern ten tribes, from me. Really want to trust him? Seems risky. And in different ways... We can understand that. We ourselves, personally, maybe you even right now, we have sat in threatened positions, vulnerable, at a crossroads of decision. Threatened, and you see in front of you, in the face of this threat, dependence on the Lord or dependence on any one of the usual, sometimes all of the usual means of the world to protect ourselves, to gather up all of our resources, to count on, to see that we are so prone to live by sight, 
to look at what we can see and to grab that in, or depending on the Lord. And the key there is the word or. The key is or, because sometimes an action, sometimes a, a resource in the world, it's not wrong to use it. In this case, it was, because he had expressly forbidden them to turn back to Egypt. And in this case, they were in an or situation. Trust the Lord or trust Egypt. But that's not always the case. Action is not always wrong for us. We need to understand this and keep it clear. Think of another example from the Bible itself. Nehemiah. When Nehemiah is about to return, lead the return back into the land, he has a conversation with, with the king who says to him, something's wrong, what is it? And he prays the Lord and talks to the king and makes his request. And. The thing we need to watch is or. Depend on the Lord or depend on the things I can put my hands on and can see and can touch. If like Nehemiah, it's depend on the Lord and act, that's okay. So which is it in your situation? I don't know. I cannot say. All I can do is put in front of you, dependence on the Lord is the call. Not, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, but do depend on God. Do return to Him. Do sit beneath Him and rest. Do trust Him. The overarching call is a positive one, to trust in the Lord. And when we do, in returning to Him, and in resting in Him, and in, in quietly trusting Him, there is a sweet promise that life, that strength and salvation follows. Risky? Sure. Why should you trust him? Why? He introduces himself in a way that, that answers that question for us. He introduces himself to these folks who look out over the wall at an approaching army. He says, trust me, why? I am the Lord God who brought you out of Egypt. I am the Holy One of Israel. I am the one who has always been your deliverer. Don't you know me, he says. Look, I am the I am. Christian, don't you know him? Why can you trust him in the midst of difficulty and challenge? The things that would incline you to say, I'm going to set him aside and I'm going to grab all the things I can grab with my hands. Why, why can you trust him? Don't you know him? He is the one who has delivered you already. He is for you. He is strong. He has already been strong to save you. And he has promised to always be with you and to never abandon you. You have good reason. If you remember who's calling you to trust him in the face of fear, you have good reason to say, okay, I see. All I'm saying is, yet again, we must always Walk into challenges in life with the gospel message right in front of us that reminds us, I know who he is. I know how he is towards me. I know his attitude towards me. I remember that. I will depend on him. I cannot see how. 
I cannot see how, but I will trust him. How will he deliver you? How will he give strength? How will he save? Who knows? We might take a bit of a, of a cue from the fact that there was only one who ever perfectly turned to and trusted and quietly sat beneath the hand of God and that one was not saved from death. He lifted up cries to his Father in heaven and those cries were heard and he was given strength to walk to and through the cross and into the grave and then was saved out of it, not from it, out of it. It may be that when we in dependence and, and sitting beneath God's hand, that when we depend on Him, trust Him, it may be that He does not keep the Assyrians back. It may be they ransack the whole place and seemingly disaster comes. Even if that is what He brings. Even if. Even in that moment you can trust Him. Even in that moment, Christian, like he did to Christ, he will give you strength to be saved through what seems to be calamity. You will not perish. He will not abandon you to the grave. This is true of you, Christian. Individually, for you personally, he calls you and says to you as an individual Christian, come to me, trust me, depend on me. I will give you strength. I will uphold you and save you. I, I know I'm not telling you anything you don't know. This passage... I have this verse written, taped on a shelf in my study. I am well aware of this verse. And I look at it all the time because I forget it. Not, not in a way of, of rejecting it, but in a way of forgetting it because I am so constantly tempted, as is common to man. You are too. We are so we are so constantly tempted in the face of fearful things to say, yeah, I know, but... No, no but, no but. Where is strength and where is salvation from the Lord found? In dependence on Him. He is faithful. He can be trusted he is the God who has already bound Himself to you and will not leave you. Rest quietly beneath His hand. It's for us personally. But I have to say that while that verse is written and taped on the shelf in my study and I look at it in relation to me personally constantly and it needs to be remembered by all of us personally, the reason I picked this passage is more of a corporate focus. And the reason I picked it for this day, a couple days before the new year, is more of a corporate focus. 
because I think about something and I wonder it's very easy to understand the application of this passage in the moment of crisis. I mean, that's the setting. Syrians coming. Danger. What are you going to do to get out of it? Depend on the Lord. He'll, he'll bring you through. He'll deliver you, give you strength, save you. That makes perfect sense. But I, I wonder how many of us think about this in the moment when crisis is less apparent. Here's what's been on my mind. I think commonly for us, for many of us, and certainly for us corporately as a church, there is not much of a sense of desperation in our lives. For some of us, indeed, comes and goes, but corporately, it's okay. Corporately, we don't sense a desperation, a, a great need, a crisis. We don't see a, a, a lack, a need to be brought into strength and a need to be brought into life. And I think... The, I think the only way that we could be, can be, are fully content with what we have right now is that we don't have much of a vision for what could be. And the word fully is important because we should be, in, in some way, I need to speak very carefully here, in some way we should be content in all circumstances. And in some way, we should be very content and very thankful with the good work that God is doing in the lives of each one of us individually and in the life of this body. God, God is at work. I do not mean to, to denigrate that, to diminish it, to, to deny it. No, indeed. But the only way we can be fully content with this is that we don't have a vision for what could be. But as brothers and sisters, as long as we can read the New Testament, as long as we can read church history, we should be alerted to something. This is a trickle at best. We can read through the, the New Testament, especially read the book of Acts, read what's written, what's kind of behind the scene in a number of the, the letters of Paul, and you can read about it and you can feel and you can see the gospel moving in power through churches and in power through people groups and in power through cities and through whole regions. The gospel explodes in Jerusalem in the, early, in the early part of the book of Acts and then runs across the Roman Empire. And everywhere Paul goes, something dramatic happens and churches are planted and grow and planted and grow and the gospel goes like this. And read church history. Increasingly, as, as I read church history, increasingly I see periods like a little bit, a little bit big. In, in little groups, in individuals, and in churches, and in regions. Indeed, we should be thankful for what God has done, but the only way we can be fully satisfied with what was happening right here is that we're not really aware of what could be. And if we would, in a moment, see what could be, then we would say, oh God, we need you. And dependence would seem increasingly important. 
we would see what could be, and I can't make that be. I can't make that be in my own heart, let alone in the hearts of my neighbors and those at my workplace, those at my school. I I can't make any of that happen. No preacher can make any of that happen. God, by his spirit alone, can make that happen. We would be, if we saw what could be, if we read the book of Acts and said, would that be, if we read church history and said, would that be, we would say, God must give strength to his people. God must save the church and those around it in increasingly great volumes. Because we can't. What would drive dependence on us not only would be crisis in our immediate lives and in the small corporate world that we live in here, but what would drive dependence would be the realization that we don't have anything resembling a waterfall or a geyser. We have a trickle, which is good, for which we should give thanks, and to which we should respond with, God, please, more. In returning and rest, you shall be saved. Me personally, in dependence, you shall be given strength. Me personally, and us corporately, that the church would be, would be invigorated and enlivened and saved from worldliness, stirred to power, such that the gospel would run. Do you read much of the New Testament? Read much of church history and say, there's stuff that happened that is mind-boggling. And we don't know it. Oh, that God would pour it out. Can you imagine for a second what it would be like to live in the middle of an awakening. I can only imagine it, but it would be precious. It would be awesome. And I can't make that be. So I come to God, we we have to come to God and say, Lord, this is our need. At times we face a particular crisis, a particular difficulty. Yes. But even in those moments when we aren't facing that, we are constantly facing a need for God to give strength to the church, for God to give a saving work that is wide. I want that. And so in hope that in the coming year we would grow in dependence. Here's a few words. This is so brief. It's just words of what that might look like. So you can jot these words down and think about them. I think they'll be obvious. It's no, no way is exhaustive, but some words that came to my mind. What does it look like to be dependent on God, looking to Him for strength and for salvation? Well, it's we would look like this, I think. A couple words. Humility. Given that our sufficiency is in Christ and that we are dependent on Him to make everything about us, then whatever is me is unimportant to me. Be an appropriate humility. 
and then in honesty with personal faults and shortcomings. Those things go together. When I discover that I'm not something, I don't really care. I'm not the one making anything happen. Humility and honesty. And repentance then, where I find myself drawn off to sin, particularly those sins where I face the or, depend on God or this. In those cases, I look at my own heart and I see the or to repent, not just to confess, but to repent and turn from it back to Him. And in faith then, obey and walk with Him. Another word I think would characterize this would be joy. If you're dependent on God and you realize God is the one making life happen, despondency leaves. But overall, what would characterize this would be prayer. Especially prayer asking for the Holy Spirit whom we need in abundance. We have a Father who knows how to give good gifts. Will He not give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Indeed, He will. The Spirit, the one who gives strength to us, the one who saves, the one who invigorates the church, who purifies the church, who would grow us in holiness, who would grow us in delight and in appreciation of God. The one who gives gifts and who runs through those gifts to make them effective. We need the the Holy Spirit's ministry among us. And we are told that He will give it when we ask. Those are a few words. You can add others. The big point, though, is while dependence on God may seem in moments of crisis risky and pointless, in fact, that's where we find life. So then, we should be careful how we respond to the offer. Which brings us to the second point. The second observation. Independence from God eventually brings predictable pain. Independence from God eventually brings predictable pain. Verse 15 lays out the offer, the promise of life. You'll be strengthened and saved. End of the verse. But you were unwilling he says of Israel. Verse 16, And you said, No, we will flee upon horses, and we will ride upon swift steeds. In other words, we're going to get fast horses and we're going to run away. That's how we'll save ourselves from this trouble. Which is not a literal plan. There's, there's no way they conceive of getting enough horses to mount the entire city of Jerusalem, let alone the tribe of Judah, and ride away to somewhere. That's, it's not a literal plan. It's Metaphorically, God's describing where their hearts are in the traditional trusting in horses and chariots. Trusting in the military might of that day. In our day, it would be tanks and aircraft carriers. You face the oar, and you turn away from me, and you trust in military might of the earth. And so using the metaphor, God holds in the metaphor and says, that won't work. You're going to get horses to run away? Well, then you will indeed have to run away. You will have to flee. In fact, a thousand of you will flee from just one of them. 
and you think you've got fast horses, well, the problem is their horses are going to be faster. And you won't get away until, end of verse 17, you're left just as a, I think the imagery, it's the speed of what the imagery is describing at the end of verse 17. A flagstaff on the top of a mountain, a signal on a hill, it seems that the imagery is describing a torn down city with just a, a lone flagpole left. Whatever it is, it's clearly negative. God is saying, it won't work. You face dependence on me or something else, you choose the something else, it won't work. And in the end, it will just produce predictable pain. Predictable because Isaiah didn't create these images that he uses here in 16 and 17. Those come right out of the law. Those are part of the covenant curses. They would have been familiar to the original hearers. God saying, honest, it doesn't work. Like I said, it doesn't work. Predictable pain follows. But what do we do with that? We're not, we're not ancient Israel. We're not in a city. We're not facing Assyrian attackers. We don't face the curses of the covenant. What do we do with it? Well, we realize that the point still applies. Predictable pain follows independence. It always has. A life of independence from God eventually brings predictable pain to everybody. Much of the world lives as if this is not true. Or maybe it's true for you people who believe in that God. No. That God is the God. The only God. And pursuing life as if he is not. Pursuing life, overlooking him and setting him aside. Inevitably it leads to great pain and great loss often in this world. He's the one who made everything. He's the one who ordered everything. And living in a denial of reality does not produce joy and delight and freedom. Inevitably, it produces pain and loss. Sometimes very acutely sensed as, as we, we clash with other people, as we experience the difficulty of trying to make life hold together with our own power that is so weak. Sometimes it's very clear. Sometimes it's, it's less clear and it's more subtle. And it's kind of a of a sense of angst inside that what is going on? What is this life about? Either way, clearly or, or subtly, God promises us that life in this world cutting across the grain, trying to live independent of God, produces pain. But even if it didn't, there would be great sorrow at the end because this life comes to an end we all die and then face the judgment. And the one God who is, is the one judge who is. And he has told us all of that now so that it is entirely predictable. So that no one misses it. So that no one accidentally stumbles themselves into an eternity away from him. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. Dependence on God is critical, and specifically, He has told us what that means. It doesn't mean some just generic, I believe, I have faith. It means specifically dependence on what God has done in Christ at the cross. 
That's the only way to depend on God. To depend on what God has done in Christ at the cross. To set that aside and to say, I trust in God anyway, is to not trust in God. Because he has said, I have come, I have sent my son to earth to go to the cross to pay for your sin. That is whom you must trust. That one. So come to him and trust him. But Christian, we who have already trusted him, it is still the truth that to live independent from him produces, eventually brings inevitable pain, predictably so. We don't face the judgment at the end in the same way. But you realize we do face the judgment at the end. Paul told us that. We must all, he's speaking of the church, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And he will not judge us personally, but he will judge what we've done. We've reviewed this before, but remember it now. He has told us that a time is coming when he will evaluate this life now, and we don't want to be found lacking then. It should affect then how we live now. It did for Paul. Concerned to please God in this life then. Concerned to experience everything that God would have for him now and everything that God would have for him in the future. Paul said, we must say, God, I sit beneath you. I depend upon you with open hands like, like, like a little baby bird with open mouth in front of its mother. Feed me. Give me everything Whenever, however, everything that you would have for me, I want, I receive, I sit beneath dependent. We must never be a people who say, I'm okay. We have the skills that we need, we have the gifts and the talents for meeting the budget. We've got enough people to fill the offices. It's okay. I'll take it from here. But we'd never say that. But when it's put in front of us, when it's put in front of us, dependence or do you, do you see in yourself an or? A contentedness it's okay. I'm okay. We're doing fine. May we never say, may we never be a people who say, not with our words, but, but in our hearts, say before him, I'm okay. That will lead, predictably so, to pain. Because God is greatly committed to bringing us back to, to pushing us towards dependence and fullness of life, which is the third point. The Lord, here's the third observation, the Lord will wait to be gracious 
when he finds independence in us, the Lord will wait to be gracious. But he will be gracious to us. He will wait. Verse 18, we get the, the final statement. You can see it's the end of the, of the poetic section there. It's the final statement, and in somewhat awkward poetry, it presents to us a God who is acting with his people somewhat like a parent with a stubborn child who is determined to get her way. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And he exalts himself to show mercy to you. He won't pour out the grace quite yet. He waits until the people are well and fully stuck. And then, rather than rubbing their nose in it, he will be merciful. That's who he is. We've got, a, we've got kind of this tension here in the last verse of a God who is waiting to be gracious, but a God who is indeed gracious, indeed has to be gracious. Where it ends, the Lord is a God of justice. He cannot abandon his people. He cannot let evil triumph. He cannot throw us away. He cannot and he will not. He is a God of justice who will always defend what is right, which means he will defend you. He will own you. He will be gracious to you. He will be merciful to you. Indeed. But... He'll wait and let that simmer for a bit until we've gotten ourselves well and fully stuck in our independence. Which is very wise and very good and in fact very gracious of him. Because what does that do? That is a refusing to honor, a refusing to feed independence which is suicidal. What a good God that he, doesn't, that, he doesn't, that he doesn't give to us while we stubbornly stand independent. They would be giving to us and, and shooing us towards the cliff. Shooing us, hurting us towards inevitable pain. No, he doesn't do that. He steps back and says, I'm not going to help that. A piece of his discipline of his people, perhaps. We're in kindness like any good parent, when any good parent spanks a child, or when any, when any good parent lets the consequences of life come into play in a child, it is not vindictive, it's redemptive. This is the God who is gracious to us, and when we run off, even as his people run off in independence and choose the path of or, he says, I won't help that, I'll let that just happen into its painful consequences so as to curtail and stop what would be even worse. He waits to be gracious, but indeed he is gracious. There's a tension there. Some of us, some of us live in life right now. And I cannot, I do not know the mind of God, I do not know what's going on in your life, but I could present this as something for you to consider before the Lord. It could be that some of the crisis that's going on in your life right now is because of your independence. And God's letting that happen as a bit of a, of a discipline. So ask yourself, 
If you need scriptural references on that, think about what's the healing passage in James 5 say? Talking about laying on hands to heal and then throwing in there, and if any of you have sinned, confess your sin. Not saying certainly, but is raising the possibility that perhaps the illness is due to your sin. Not all, not all, not all, not all, not all. But the passage says, maybe, so consider it. Not all. If you're sick, if you're ill here today, hear that very clearly. I am not saying it's because you are a sinner. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. But I am saying, perhaps consider, is God using this in my life to awaken me, to draw me to further dependence on him? That's what I'm saying. Is that clear? God graciously waits to be gracious when he sees our independence. That's what he does with Israel here. He says, okay, see how that works out. But he delivered them from the Assyrians. If we read the history, he delivered them from the Assyrians. He was gracious to them. He exalts himself, it says. He exalts himself to show mercy to you. That's his calling card. That's what lifts him up and shows him to be the Lord, that he is a God of mercy and of steadfast love towards his people, faithful to keep his covenant. Blessed are all those who wait for him, because that's who he is. Dependence, people of God, dependence always pays off for you, and independence never does. Never does. The point is that we should be aware of this and should address ourselves now, in every day, now, and I hope perhaps in the coming year in a new way, in a, in a, in a more holistic way, that we would say what's important is dependence on God. Let's avoid the need for any of God's discipline. Let's avoid the need for any of God's gracious refraining of blessing. Now, this is not tit for tat. Follow a formula. I do this, that, and the other. I, okay, what were the words you said? Humility and honesty. And, and if I get really good at that and really good at that really good at that, then God will. No, it doesn't work like that. It does not work like that. In fact, those are things that God grows in us. But what I'm saying is we, we attend to, we come to God in prayer and say, God, grow me. God, I sit beneath you. Graciously meet me. And what happens is we, like birds with mouths open, we get fed. We are grown. May we in the coming year be a people who are keenly aware of our need for God who are keenly committed to dependence upon him in moments of crisis, and even when not in moments of crisis, would we be aware of, alerted to a possibility that more could be? God, would you pour out your spirit on us? Stir me, grow me, grow us. Cause the word to run, cause Christ to be honored in my life here in this room, in the valley and in the nation and the world. You must do it. Pour out your spirit on us, please. 
in returning and in rest, in quietness and in trust, we are strengthened and saved. Strength in salvation is found in dependence on God. Let me pray. Father, please speak to our minds and our hearts and encourage us and correct us and draw us on after you. Thank you for being a God who is faithful to never leave us but promises to deal with us in grace. Even graciously withholding grace in a moment. Lord, deal with each of us wherever we are. Some here who aren't Christians, some here, most here who are. Some here who are facing present moment crises and some most who aren't. Whatever our particular situation is, would you deal with us? Would you draw us on after you? Would you feed us and grow us and save and strengthen us? We look to you. We are dependent on you. You are the one we need. Thankfully, you are available. Bless your name for that. We say thank you. You have made yourself available to us in Christ, and we say thank you. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.